Welcome to the CAMCast. The CAM Project is the take action nonprofit organization to inspire, influence, and impact kids and teens worldwide. Your CAMCast host interviews older teens, parents, mentors, and specialists, providing tips, advice, education, inspiration, and a supportive community to kid and teen entrepreneurs. Introducing owner of Actionista Live and co founder of the CAM Project, your host, Samara Beth Hurley. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the CAMCast. I am so excited because we have probably the most important guest that we've ever had because she gave birth to me. And <laughs> thus, we have us, the Samara Schwartz, or Samara Beth Schwartz, I should say. We had my mom, who is an entrepreneurial mother. She's come from an upbringing that is unique to this world. And I just want her to tell her story and how things were growing up in the household that she was living in and how she became the person that she is today. This is the CamCast. Welcome, Laurie Fuller Schwartz. Hello, Samara Beth Hurley. <laughs> so my mom is actually in the other room and we've been running back and forth trying to get this to work in the same household. Some things are just easier when you're with somebody who knows what Zoom is and how microphones work. But we got it going. So we have made my mom at the age of, can we say how old you are, Ma? Yeah, sure. How old are you, Mommy? 73. 73 years old. She looks amazing. And yes, <laughs> I still call her my mommy. I am 45 and I'm the baby of three. I have two older brothers. And so, Mom, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because our listeners just do not know who you are, what you do or what you've done in your entrepreneurial life. Like, how did it all start? Okay, then I'll go back to the beginnings. I was born in Munich, Germany. My family was in the Holocaust, unfortunately. So I was born in Germany and we came to America when I was two years old and we went to Newark, New Jersey, and we lived there for about, I think, five years or so. And then we moved to Baltimore and I lived in Baltimore until like 12 and a half years ago where we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and that's where we're living now. And we love it here. From a professional standpoint, when I went to school, I was an x-ray technician and I trained at Mercy Hospital in Baltimore. And I really liked being in medicine a lot. And then when I got pregnant with Samara's oldest brother, who's now, he just turned this week, actually 51. You were an x-ray technician right. at the hospital right. in Baltimore. Yeah, that's what I was starting to say. I was an x-ray and that could be dangerous when you're pregnant. So when I became pregnant with Jonas, who is now 51, I left x-ray and I became a mother and a full-time wife and homemaker. And many years later, after I had three children, Samara is the youngest of the three, I kind of wanted to do something else. And so I had a very dear friend in Baltimore, Sharon, and we both like to cook and we both like to bake and all. And so we decided to start a French dessert business. And we had both been doing French desserts. So we started Creme de la Creme. And we did that for several years. And it was a lot of work because a lot of it was like last minute kind of work that you had to do to get orders ready. So that worked out well for a couple of years. Go back to that. So going back to the fact that you were a French pastry chef with your best friend, Sharon. Uh -huh. um, and it, I think it's funny that your granddaughter, Ava, has her own baking business. And her favorite thing to make is French pastries. So right. 
How did you react to that when you first found out about Ava training privately with a French pastry chef? Well, I thought that was like such a hoot because I also trained with a French chef in Baltimore. Sharon and I both trained and we took lots of different cooking classes with different people. I even was fortunate enough to have a class with Jacques Pippin, who is a famous chef, and he was teaching in Baltimore. So that was good. You know, when Ava went into this, I thought it was just so funny. I, I think it is a genetic, you know, the, in our genes. <laughs> Um, Get my gene. <laughs> and I was so proud of her and, and, and you, Samara, watching the kind of magnificent things that you all came up with. You went above and beyond. I never was able to do fondants and some of the really beautiful, beautiful things that the two of you were able to come up with. I really did not do. But it was fun and I liked it. But then I wanted to do something more. And I had always been intrigued with death and dying. And I had read for, for uh, since I was like in my early 20s, a lot about people that had near-death experiences. And that was like a passion of mine. It became a passion. And through a set of circumstances, I became involved with the organization that studied near-death phenomena, the International Association for Near-Death Studies out of University of Connecticut at the time. Over a set of circumstances, they invited me over the years to be a board member And that was for several years. And they decided they wanted to start doing conferences. And that was my forte of doing events that even when I was a teenager in high school, my forte was doing events. I always liked doing it and I was pretty good at it. So I'm actually going to stop you there, mom, because I've never interviewed someone and called them mom. I'm going to stop you there, mommy, because... You are, you kind of skipped right on to IONS, uh, but it's interesting because you came from Holocaust survivors. You were first generation. You were born in Munich, Germany, and then you came over and it's almost like you skipped the entrepreneurial upbringing that you had. So I'm going to make you go back to that at this time before we jump into the events, because that's more of the future So you came over on a boat by an organization that brought you over. Um, You can even, I'd love for you to share the story of uh, what it was like with Bubby and Zadie. And because they also are entrepreneurs. So let's go back even further. Well, it's really, thanks for, thanks for taking me back to that because it is an interesting story. When we came to America, again, I say it was like in 1950. And to tell you the truth, I can't even imagine how my mother did it. She had a two-year-old and was pregnant with who later became my brother. He was born in America. They did not speak English and they were, you know, we came as legal immigrants and I lived in immigrant life for much of my early years because at home we spoke Yiddish. They had an immigrant mentality. And so it was a, a difficult life for me because you know, like school was not easy because I had parents that were not American. You know, they could only help me so much with homework and all. And I was somebody that needed, you know, more than just a little bit of help. So things like that were really, really a challenge. My brother, who happened to be innately brighter, didn't need the kind of help that I did. So that was kind of difficult. All of our friends that we were surrounded with came from the same or similar backgrounds. They were all from Europe, different parts of Europe, 
different Holocaust experiences. Some were hidden in the forest and some were in labor camps and some were in death camps. My mother was in Auschwitz, which was horrible. She was the youngest of eight children. Only she and one brother survived. I never had grandparents. They were all killed. And most of my aunts, uncles, cousins were all killed. So it was it was a difficult life. But everybody we were surrounded with had a similar life like that. And so it seemed the normal because I was surrounded by people that all had a similar situation. When we were in Newark, my father worked. And again, these people were not good in English. And Jewish agency helped them financially in the beginning and helped them with trying to get jobs. And so my father had a job during the day. And then later, my mother got a job, a night job. So it was difficult. He'd come home and she'd leave. And she worked at RCA making the little, you know, most of you were not going to remember this, but TVs used to have like little tubes in it. And she was working on that at RCA in Newark. And so my father was the one with us at night. And that was that was a real challenge. Tell us about that, because back then it was more custom for the female to stay home and the male to go out and be the breadwinner. So what was that like? They obviously need the money that my mother had to work at night and my father during the day. And yet my mother during the day had to be our mother also. So it was, it was a tough life. So anyway, it was kind of odd because I remember my father would go away for days at a time. And I was young. I was like maybe seven or so. And I didn't understand what was going on. But what was going on was some of their friends that lived in Newark that they knew from Europe were moving to Baltimore and they were buying grocery stores and becoming their own boss. And so because all these people were working for other people at other places and now they wanted to be their own boss and they helped each other financially. And so that's what my father was doing, was going back and forth from Newark to Baltimore and looking around with these people to find a business. So then we moved to Baltimore and we lived in a neighborhood for about a month or two. And again, I was young, so I wasn't aware of everything that was happening. And then suddenly, after a couple of months, we moved downtown. And then Marty, my brother and I were the only white kids and we lived in a black neighborhood. And all my friends were black. Everybody I hung out with was black. And again, I was like maybe eight years, nine years old at the time. And uh, and it was very different. I mean, it was nothing for my brother and I to walk up to the street. And he was two and a half years younger than me. Walk up to the avenue, which now you would not walk up to if you could, because it's become a very dangerous place. And, and it was nothing for Marty and I to walk up there by ourselves and, you know, go to Tommy Tucker, which was a five and 10 cent store and all while my parents worked the business. They worked seven days a week. My mother always worked in the business with my father. When I was 10, I started working in the business and worked at the cash register. And, you know, it was a little grocery store. That was the life. That's what the life was like. Surprise, you still count on your fingers of math during the cash register. I am not even good at math. I still use my fingers. I'm going to say it out loud to the world. I am horrible at math. How is it that we are not good at math, mom? When you, you worked at a cash register, I was a cashier for a gourmet grocery store. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened there. Something, well, something but got you know dropped. what? I think when you worked at gourmet, the gourmet grocery store, 
I think by then the cash registers would already tell you how much change you had to give. When I did it, it didn't, it wasn't that sophisticated. They, nothing was computerized. <laughs> I had to figure it out myself. And that was not easy. Math has always been a challenge. And what's interesting about that, and I don't understand why this is, hereditarily, my mother and father were very good in math, but they had to quit school like maybe seventh and eighth grade because that's when the Nazis came in to Poland, where they were from. They didn't each know each other at the time. And so they had to quit school. So they didn't even have, you know, schooling past like maybe what we would consider junior high or maybe first year high school. And yet they were both very good in math. And I did not, for whatever the reason, get that gene. I don't know why I didn't, but I didn't. So anyway, so they had that store. And then after a couple of years, we moved, we lived upstairs on top of the store. And then a couple of years, we moved to a neighborhood uptown. And that was harder. We thought that'd be easier, but it was harder because my poor mother was running back and forth between the store and where we lived. And it was like a good half an hour, 45 minute drive each direction. And she's killing herself running back and forth. And it was like that for many, many years. And so, so my parents who did not speak great English, were not raised here, did not have much family here, became very entrepreneurial, as did many of the other refugees that all bought grocery stores and all really became very entrepreneurial. They didn't even know that was the word. And that's what they became. Do you think that they did that because they didn't feel like they could trust anyone else to work for someone else? Or do you think they just wanted to restart and rebuild after losing absolutely everything? Well, you know, I think they wanted to be their own boss. I, they wanted to control their own life. Not be controlled by other people like they were by the Nazis. Yeah. That makes no, sense. I don't know. You know, I don't know. But I think they like having their own controlling it and having their own money and controlling all of that, as opposed to having somebody else control it. And they all did it. They And what happened was when somebody would come, like the Denrichers, you remember them, Samara. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. When they came to Baltimore, they would the greenas that were just short for greenhorns. And that's what we considered ourselves. We were greenas. They would help each other, look for businesses for each other, lend each other money. And they were there for each other. It was really extraordinary. It's interesting. I just need to interject this. I went to a movie not too long ago, right before COVID. And it was a movie about some people that were survivors. And it was like four or five different families that were all different, you know, and showing different snippets of these different groups and different people that came to America in a similar situation as my parents. But they moved to places and they didn't know anybody and they didn't have that community. And I was stunned when I watched that movie and I turned to my husband, your dad, and said, I can't believe it. I was so used to living the life of having this community surrounding each other. And it was up until my parents died. That was what the situation was. And they all had each other, these same people. And when I saw this movie and saw the other side of people that didn't have it, I was floored. I had no idea how fortunate we were until I actually saw the movie. I thought it was like that for everybody. And it obviously was not. So anyway, so then my father, they sold the businesses, you know, and then would buy another one, but only had one at a time. I always worked in the store. It was something that I just always did. And I was like a teenager then. You know, that was that was a life. That's that was the life. There was no other, you know, that's how I grew up. 
So Zadie had a liquor store in D.C. Well, that changed. Yeah, this was now years later after we had one, two, three, three different locations. Again, individual, not together, not at the same time Mm -hmm. in Baltimore. And then they decided, my parents decided with another couple, the Abramowitzes, to buy a liquor store in Washington, D.C. In Adams Mark, isn't that the area in D.C.? It might have been. It might have been. Which is a hot spot. Yeah, like yeah. a very hot and spot. And so my yeah. father had had this grocery store with, I mean, I'm sorry, the grocery store with a partner. And that meant that my mother did not have to work like she worked all that time. Um, the unfortunate part was that we weren't there. We were like an hour away in Baltimore. So it wasn't as easy for me to take advantage of my mother being more woman of leisure now, as opposed to working most of my you know, life. So anyway, so then they moved to Washington and they had the liquor store and then they came back to Baltimore years later and moved back. And that's where they were, you know, until the end of their life. Kind of amazing. There's so many other stories to tell in there. The CamCast is is about interviewing parents and mental health specialists and teachers and mentors, entrepreneurs. We really have, we have mindset coaches, all kinds of people that have been on the show already. Our focus with the CamCast is helping kids and teens become entrepreneurs. And a big part of that is there's a lot of kids who are depressed and lonely, suicidal. You have people who lost children, teens who lost parents and grandparents to COVID, who have lost neighbors, teachers who weren't still not able to go to school, uh, lockdowns, all the things that go along with it. Then you have people with disabilities. You add that to the mix. I mean, these kids are have had so many mental health issues are going to coming out of COVID now, but it's going to continue and it's going to trickle down. So I know that you had a situation in high school. Are you willing to share anything about that? Uh, well, actually, I haven't mentioned names. <laughs> uh, but was it? It was not high school. It was it was younger than that in the in the eighth grade. No, seventh grade in the seventh grade. Yeah. But yeah. There was tell everyone a, how you met your best friend, uh, who's still your best Sharon, friend. Yeah. Yeah. Who's still my, we've been best friends since the seventh grade and we're both the same age. So it's been a long time. Yeah. There was somebody in the seventh grade who lived two doors down from me, actually. I don't know why she did it. She was very popular and I was like nothing. I was truly nothing at the time. And she told a lie about me. And it was a horrible, awful lie. And she ruined my reputation. And I was treated terribly in, in the seventh and eighth grade. It was, it was awful. But there is a positive to that. If somebody gave me $5 million and said, Laurie, relive that time again, not for $5 million would I relive it again. And my life was really difficult then because of this person. And I have no idea why they did it, but they did. What I learned from that, and I did learn from it, was I became a very, very different judge of character. And it really, as horrible as the situation was, and it was horrible, it made me, after it kind of resolved itself, it took years, years and years to resolve itself. I just kind of became a little bit stronger as a result of it, going through that and having lived through it. And then it's funny, you say how I met Sharon. We were at a Sweet 16, I think. And it was at this catering place. And they had a fruit. Because you guys were 13, wasn't it? 
or maybe it was a bat mitzvah. It, it was wasn't a bat mitzvah. It was a bat mitzvah. Okay, you got me to remember your stories. I yeah, it was a bat mitzvah. <laughs> we both happened to like cut fruit. She was the most popular girl in middle school, the most popular. And I was the most not anything. I was nothing at that point. And so we're both standing over the the fruit bar and we're eating and everybody's starting to sit down at the table. And we're still eating pineapple and all this. And we're talking and she knew who I was. I knew who she was, but we never really had a lot of, you know, there was no reason for her to have, you know, much conversation with me. But we were talking over the fruit bar. We became kind of friendly-ish. And it was funny. Her mother did not drive and her father was working. And I lived within walking distance of where this uh, venue was. I said to her, if you'd like, why don't we, you, we can walk after the party's over to my house and you can stay there till your dad, you know, comes back from work and he can pick you up. Well, from that day on, from that day on, I mean, it's, you know how you remember like a, a pivotal moment in your life? Well, that's how I remember that. It's so clear. I could even tell you what we wore that day. That's how much clear it is. And I was in the seventh grade. We became best friends and we became like almost inseparable. And so that has been for like, I don't know, we celebrate our 50 something anniversary of she and I, not even counting our husbands. And we double dated our was to be future husbands. And she became my oldest son's godparents. And, you know, our life just stayed together for all those years. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And then she's the person that became my partner in the French dessert catering business. And then we spent all our holidays and yeah, yeah. We did all the holidays together and we'd be three generations because it would be her parents, my parents, our parents would go out together. I mean, we were together for so long that my parents were at her brother's bar mitzvah, her parents, and she were my brother's bar mitzvah. I mean, that's how many years ago and how tight we were for that many years. How about the wedding? We still are. And we still are. I'm blessed. Your wedding. Yeah. Their wedding was what, a week apart? No, three days apart. Three and days. Three days. Three days apart. And I was in her wedding, but she was on her honeymoon for my wedding and couldn't change the date because my parents had a business and everything revolved around the business and they were closed on a Sunday. So mine had to be on a Sunday. And hers was on a Thursday. But a funny thing was many, many, many years later, I mean, 20 some, 30 years later, once a month, we'd have dinner together, just the two of us. And we're at dinner. And I had just been in a party of two couples that were very good friends. And they had a shared 25th anniversary party. And I said to her, hey, I have a good idea. And our 25th anniversary was coming up like in two years. And I said, we just went to this thing. Why don't we do that? You know, the two couples. And she said, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Why don't we do a trip instead? So we all, we wound up, we saved for two years to go to Israel and our husbands and all six of our children, we each had three kids and we all went to Israel instead of doing the party. But at this same dinner, I said to her, Sharon, I just had a thought. No, she says to me, she just had a thought. I said, what was your thought? This is 23 years later, mind you. She said, I don't understand. Why didn't Barry and I get married on Thursday, go to Washington, maybe, which was an hour away, for a couple of days, come back, be in your wedding, 
And then the four of us would go on our honeymoon together. We said, oh my God, what a fabulous idea. But we didn't think of it until 23 years later. So it was funny. For my 25th anniversary, I had a big party. And some of the clergy we were friendly with was at the party. So I decided we're going to do a surprise renewal of wedding veils. It was our 25th anniversary. I had like 125 people there. It was a big party at our house. And I told the clergy what I wanted to do. And nobody knew but the clergy and me what I was doing. And we had a renewal of wedding veils with the rabbis and the canners. They were all there at my party. And it was a surprise. And I did it with me and your father and Sharon and Barry. And all our kids were there and our parents were there. And they were all called up. And we had this renewal of wedding veils that we never were able to do together for our wedding. So that was very, very cool. It was very cool. That and the karaoke machine. Right. You remember. (laughs) And the rainbow cake. (laughs) But do you want to hear more entrepreneurial stuff? Yes, I do. (laughs) I know. I think we're going to have to do like six different podcast interviews because there's so many things that you have to share because (laughs) this is how we're going to write our book and movie, right? Mm. So, okay. So go back to IONS um, and let's talk a little bit about that as well and some of your other businesses. (laughs) One of the things though we have with my mother and I is the number of business cards that she has. (laughs) So let's go on and talk about. So anyway, so the organization decided we talked about having a conference. And I said, well, you know what? If we have a conference, I've done these kind of things. I would like to chair it. So that's what happened. I chaired our conference, which was at the Georgetown uh, University Conference Center in Washington. And it was a big conference. It was started Thursday night and it went to Sunday. And ironically, it was in August of that year. And ironically, Ghost, the movie Ghost, came out a month or so earlier, and Flatliners came out within that month. So here we had two death and dying famous movies that had overlap of what we were doing with IONS and near-death experiences. Flatliners was all about near-death experiences. And Ghost was, you know, Sam comes back and, you know, most people have seen it because it was just such a popular movie. And so because of that, so we have this big conference, hundreds and hundreds of people there. The Japanese broadcasting came from Japan to film it. Because of the movies, Entertainment East Station was there to film it. A lot of stations came and wanted to film the conference. So that was somewhat extraordinary. And I remember when I walked up to welcome everybody the first night and I'm facing all these cameras, these, you know, movie, you know, movie, but video cameras. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe that this is really happening. It was that extraordinary. The synchronicity of all these things, the movies and the conference and everything happening at the same time was somewhat extraordinary. It was international. We had speakers from other countries and it was an incredibly successful conference. So I did conferences for IONS, I think, for two more years. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I'm working really hard. I don't get paid a penny. It's all volunteers. I'm going to start my own conference company and do this. And that's what I did. So I broke off and started my own conference company for Death and Dying. And I did conferences, I think, for 
three years and some went extremely well. The last one did not go as well as I'd hoped, not that the conference wasn't great, it was, but there was somebody else in Baltimore and we knew each other and she decided to have a conference a few weeks later, which was, I didn't think, a very nice thing to do because mine was happening first. So we were pulling people and her subject matter was some overlap there. So we were pulling people from each other, which was not a good thing. That was a problem. But anyway, then I was invited the year after that. One of my speakers from Norway, who had um, spoken at several of my conferences over the years, called me up and asked if I wanted to co-present uh, a conference with him in Oslo, Norway. And when I do the American end of speakers, and he would do the European and Norwegian end. And I said, yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. So I did that. And Daddy and I went to Oslo, Norway. And we did the conference there and it went extremely well. And we had people from lots of different countries in Europe that came and different speakers from different countries were there. And that was wonderful. And then what happened after that? I'm trying to think. In college at that point, wasn't I? I was helping you. I know that I was helping you organize everything because. Right at the conferences. My type A. I have shared in past podcasts about my OCD type A color coordinated sock drawer. (laughs) <laughs> you're so cute <laughs> you're not supposed to say you're so cute to your you podcast to host is that a thing I don't know I don't know if you could say you're so cute to your podcast as, <laughs> unless it's you're your mom <laughs> I can say yeah, I'm your mother and I can say it so you had that business and then I think you got your real did you get your real estate agent license after that yeah because of that conference that didn't go as well I lost some money and so that was very that was very upsetting so I figured this is not working right now. And this other person was still doing stuff. And I figured, uh, she, you know, if she is going to be pulling from stuff that I'm doing, then it's not a good idea. I mean, it's a very expensive proposition to run a weekend conference. And so I was not going to put myself in that same situation again. I believe at that point, I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe at that point, people from Russia were able to come into the United States and move here. And so we had a large community of Russians come to Baltimore and migrate here. And I worked at the the gourmet grocery store that I worked at. And a lot of them came and worked there as well. And they they were great at math, too. And their English wasn't great. So it was kind of like a cycle, uh, just like when you guys immigrated uh, to the U.S. And they were cashiers at the grocery store and I was a cashier with them. So I was able to make many friendships and you made a special friendship during that time as well. Let's hear a little bit about that. Right. Which led to a business. I mean, you have no idea where life's going to lead you. A year later, I bought a computer. About what year was this? It was uh, 1995, I think 95 or 96. And I bought a computer. I went to a computer show. So I didn't go into like a store store. I bought it from, you know, people that are at computer shows. Actually, I I graduated high school in 94. So you bought a computer. It was a big deal because it wasn't the Apple II CE. Like we had all of that. This was a a higher technology. The internet was coming about. And they put it together for me. You know, they put the computer together. So I had to go pick it up. So I go pick it up. And this Russian guy with a real attitude, not a good attitude, (laughs) comes out and brings me the computer. And to make a long story very short, he and I became, he was very knowledgeable. He had come from Russia not that long ago, and he was very smart on computers. 
I heard the word internet when nobody knew the word internet ever. Sasha knew about internet from Russia and the Russian military, and nobody heard the word internet. He wanted to design websites and try and start a business. And his English was not great. And his interpersonal skills were not great. Not great. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know what? Over time, I said, maybe I'll help you. Maybe I can help you. And that's what happened. And then we started our business. And it went really well for several years. And then what became a real serious problem, and I'm sure there are other people that can very much relate to this, is we had this small business. And then all of a sudden, some of the big guys were coming into town. And it was like having a mom grocery store across the street from Costco. And it was, you couldn't compete. You just couldn't compete with these huge places. And they were like eating you up alive. And we were doing really well. I mean, we won an award for the uh, from Baltimore Magazine. We were in that as one of the top 10 websites I designed with him. He did the technical and I did the designs and the ideas and stuff. Um, called the Senior Info Site, and it was a site for seniors and the adult children of seniors to find facilities for seniors, you know, and, and products and services and blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, big companies came in and started doing that. Well, how do you compete with that? That are having advertisements on television. So you couldn't. So, so that how did you how did you go from what happened in your life that you decided to switch gears into a senior info site helping What happened before that is the stock market crashed. Black Monday was on my 40th birthday and the stock market crashed. And I thought, and at the time, oh, wait, I forgot. In between that, I was teaching at Johns Hopkins University in their continuing education program. So I was taught there for nine years, you know, several times a year. And it was open to anybody that worked within Johns Hopkins, which was hospitals and universities and I mean, it was like a city in itself. And I taught communication skills and listening skills, conflict resolution. So I did that for nine years at the same time of doing some of these other things. And the stock market crashed on my 40th birthday, Black Monday. And I thought, whoa, places are not going to be hiring. This was like soft programs, you know, they weren't going to be. when you were doing DISC, which I'm still sorry. exists, by the way. You were doing DISC back then, right? Is that right. what you were doing? Right. I was doing, doing the DISC program, the which personality was like the assessment program, for... which was really brilliant. I thought it was still so around. It's it still around. around. I, I and, I, yeah. and I just, I love doing that. I really enjoyed that a lot. So then I thought, well, wait a minute, I got to do something fast. I don't have a lot of time to, you know, spend time getting, you know, degrees and something else and all. So I figured the thing I could do the quickest was get a real estate license, which isn't something <laughs> no I was offense, going to do. No offense to all real estate agents out there. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it was hard. It was, I took a two-week intense. I had no idea how intense a two-week intense was. So I got my real estate license and I was working in real estate. I was wa- working on auction properties. So I did that for a while. Well, so- I do believe that you skipped over the part where you produced a conference and had your daughter on the stage having a past life regression. Oh, 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 yeah. Well, that was part of Hypnosis. the death. Yeah. But that was part of, you know, the death and dying time also. Right. Correct. But you became a certified hypnotherapist. Right. Right. And used to practice on me at home. Thank you. I forgot about that. <laughs> but that was still all part of like when I was doing death and dying, you know. Um, so then what happened was 
I started rehabbing houses. And I like that. I like doing it. You actually, you actually skipped, you skipped a very large part of your life there, mom. Bubby had a stroke in Miami. Oh, yes. She had a a a pre-stroke, like a TIA, I think is what it's called. Everything that they could do the opposite way, the wrong way they did, you know, no matter what I beg them and how much I beg to do things a certain way, they wouldn't listen. And it was horrible. It was just horrible. So, so when they came back to Baltimore, drove back, which I begged them not to, but they did. A few months later, she had a massive stroke. And again, everything, everything that they could have done the right way, they didn't. And my mother became paralyzed on her left side and she had this stroke and the ramifications of it all for 10 years. And it was awful. And then she was in a lot of physical therapy and then she was able to then walk with assistance. And then one day she fell and broke her hip. And then once that happened, she could never walk again. So things went from bad to worse. And this was over a 10 year period. And then the year before, like in her ninth year, my father had a stroke. So now I had two paralyzed parents at the same time. And to say that was difficult is, you know, is is an understatement. My brother, who was a neurologist, lived in California. So pretty much everything kind of fell on your, your dad and I. And your father was extraordinary. I mean, I like fell in love with him all over again. He was so phenomenal to my parents and to me and so thoughtful and kind and, and helpful. I I just, I couldn't, I could have never done it without him. He was that fabulous. So that was an incredibly difficult time for, for them, obviously horrible for them, but for us too. And part of me felt angry that we paid the price for their poor choices of not doing things the way, you know, we begged them to do it, you know, and it broke my heart to see my mother deteriorate that way. So then my father died, and then three months later, my mother died. And that was pretty awful for me because there was a big conference on death and dying in. Uh, and I just moved from Hawaii to Houston. Right. You had just moved. And we were in temporary renting a house, and you were there. Uh, visiting and I hadn't seen you in conference. several years. And this conference was at MD Anderson in Houston. And that was a big deal having a death and dying near death conference at MD Anderson. And I really wanted to go. And my mother was in hospice. My father had already died. I asked every doctor, every nurse, every social worker, I did not have to go. Wanted to, but didn't have to. And I was very dedicated to my mother. I mean, I was there, if not every day, almost every day in 10 years. I asked every single person working there, you know, I don't have to go. And I was going to go for like maybe five days or so. And everybody said to me, your mother will be fine. She'll be fine. My daddy was still there. Your father was there. I wasn't leaving my mother. And my friend Sharon, that the one I talked about became my best friend. She also was visiting my mother. So that's how close we were. You know, when her mother got sick and her father, I would visit them in the hospital. That That's what our relationship was like. So I wasn't leaving high and dry, but I didn't have to go. And I went and I'm sitting in a session of the conference and your brain is really interesting. I'm sitting there and the door opens and I see this person at the door and I think to myself, gosh, that person looks familiar. And all of a sudden I said, oh my God, it's Samara. It was you. And I thought, oh my God, something happened with my mother. 
the hope was that my mother took a turn for the worse and I needed to come home right away. But that's not what happened. She died. And I was devastated. Not so much because she died, because I have different feelings of death and dying than the average person, because I've worked with it for so long. But she died and I wasn't there. And that was devastating to me that I wasn't there. You all arranged a flight and you drove me to the airport. And and it was, I mean, it was awful. And daddy picked me up and Sharon and Barry, my friends that I talked about, were at the hospice and we got there. And the hospice said they would let my mother stay there until I got there. And I was hysterical, but hysterical because I wasn't there. And the irony is I listened to the messages on my phone. My best friend Sharon was there maybe a half an hour, an hour before she died. And the message Sharon left me on my phone was, Laura, I'm at the hospice with your mom. She's sleeping. She's looking good. Her color is good. Don't worry. You know, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I'll talk to you later. Give me a call later. And my mother died shortly after that phone message. So the whole thing was surreal. So, yeah, so that happened also. Right. And it also is why you started the senior info site. And no, I started on. Way before that. No, that not way. after. I'm saying because you were seeing the lack of resources that were right, around right, right, and right, that, right. that you needed to have something a uh, go to uh, right, for right, people right. who That's are struggling. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never um, it's thought a good thing this... I remember some things for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's like, you know what? As you can tell, I've done a lot of stuff. It's hard to remember the sequence. It's hard to remember. Let me ask you, what kind of advice? Because then you started flipping homes. You moved to Arizona. You started flipping homes. And you guys did that as well, you and dad. Dad did, you know, the real estate in, you know, the buying and the selling. But the house itself, I, I did myself. Which was kind of, and you became a home, a home stager. So that was another. And I like, yeah, yeah. And I really like, love flipping and I'd love to find a house right now to flip, but the prices are crazy. Well, the best thing about you that's inspiring is that you pretty much have taken any passion that you've had and turned it into a business versus just figuring out, I'm going to do this because it's going to make a lot of money. Um, it, it sounds like you pretty much said, I love this. I'm going to make this a business. Is that right? Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's probably right. I think I pretty much do the same thing there, don't you think? Yes, yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm having, a, I'm enjoying watching you, you know, do all the stuff you're doing. And it's funny, you used to laugh at me. I used to have a lot of business cards. And you'd always laugh at all the businesses I'd had. And I remember you saying to me when the teachers would ask in school, Oh, what do your parents do? What does your mother do? And you said, I never knew what to say. There were so many things. I never knew what to say. Your daughter could say the same thing about you. Well, I will say, though, at least all the businesses I've run kind of all tie together <laughs> with the skill set. Yours are a little bit all over. Yeah, yeah, a little, little different. Homes, little different, different. It, it is amazing to watch. And I think that's important that these stories are told because most kids and grandkids don't know all the stories like Bubby and Zadie did not tell us most of their life stories because it was so much hardship and you just didn't speak of the Holocaust. You didn't talk about that. In fact, every time I had a report to do for Sunday school or whatever I needed to do, and it was doing it on the Holocaust, they would take me to a friend's house and sit there while their friends told their story to me. And my grandparents would just not, they wouldn't open up. 
They didn't so it's, yeah. it's just interesting. And we'll have to have another podcast episode fully <laughs> about that and generational trauma and all the things that go along with being a 3G, a third generational and first generational, second generational Holocaust survivor. But for parents out there and grandparents who are watching their kids struggle or their kids have a great talent, uh, they might have already started a business that's successful selling a lip balm or making hair bows or whatever it may be. So what is something that you would advise parents and grandparents or young entrepreneurs, people who even start businesses at a younger age? What are some some advice that you would give them being that you are 73 and you have run many businesses? Some have been successful. Some have maybe have failed, but I don't believe that there are any bad failures. I think no, that just lessons, no, right? just lessons. So, so give us your advice, mommy. Well, <laughs> well, honey, you know, you can do anything. You can do anything. I mean, I couldn't be a brain surgeon and I couldn't design a bridge or something like that, but anything within reason If you have the proper tools, and the proper tools are not necessarily tools that you think of as tools. Some of them are the intelligence or the mindset or the strengths that you have. I mean, I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. And over time, I became stronger in things that I didn't expect to be. I like organizing things. You know, I like behind the scene kind of stuff more than being out there, even though, but I can do that also. I was an average student in regular school through high school. But then when I got into x-ray, I became much better. But then I realized when I was in x-ray that I was a visual learner and not an auditory. And most schools taught auditorily. So I knew what I then needed for myself to be able to understand things better learning x-ray and anatomy and things like that, I would have never dreamt I'd have physics and chemistry be successful in it. I never had back then x-ray was where you went to the hospital and trained there for two years and you got your x-ray degree. Whereas now I think you have to have an associate degree of two years of college and then go into x-ray. I didn't have to have that then, but then I missed not having a college degree. I went back to school at in my thirties. So I went back, I had three kids and it took me like seven years to get 60 credits. So, because I only could take a few at a semester because I had three kids. I mean, I was doing, helping you with book reports and then starting my homework at nine, 10 o'clock at night. We'll have to get into another podcast episode of all of our learning disability (laughs) overcompensating that my mother and I have done throughout her lives. But then I learned challenges, you're right, challenges. where my strengths were and what I could do better than others. Being a parent, because I saw what I had to do for me, and then I saw what was happening with you in school, in elementary school, third grade even, I knew what I needed for me, and I could see some of the same issues you had such as learning certain things and all. And I kind of taught you to tell teachers, could you write that on the board? I need to see that because you weren't catching it like I didn't catch it, hearing it. It went in one ear and out the other. Whereas if I visually saw it, I could see it better. And I was able to help you with that. 
Of the three kids, Jonas had a photographic memory, the oldest, and he was a very good student and it came easy. Adam, it was harder. You, it was the hardest. You had to work like a dog. And because I saw some of the, the issues I had in you, and I saw what I had to do when I went to, back to college, that's when I finally recognized it because of my x-ray experience of visually seeing doing x-rays, seeing the anatomy and everything, that then it clicked in place when I had to learn those things. And I saw you having some of those issues also. And that's where it became a really good experience because I was able to help you or help other kids with that. And that's important. I think it's important for a parent to really know their kid and know what it is that they need to be successful. And it makes me sad that there are a lot of kids, especially kids from lower income and all that parents are working all the time. And I was fortunate. I was home with you. I think because my mother was never home with us and could, they were always working in the store. I wanted to be an at home and a, a raise my children mother because I didn't have that. And your father enabled that to happen. And so it's sad that there are children that have certain learning disabilities and learning styles And there isn't anybody there to be their advocate or their ally. And I was able to do that because I saw those deficiencies in me. And when I saw some of the issues that you had, and this is way before I you even went to the specialist for the, you know, SATs and all. This is before that. I saw it as a a real beneficial thing that I went through because I was able to help you. And there were times I had to help Adam. We spent a lot of money on tutoring for you for Adam and even for me, when I went back to school, I had your tutor help me because I had to learn mnemonics, have to memorize stuff. And she'd help me with mnemonics where you'd come up with a phrase that would help you remember, you know, each letter would be another memory of another thing you were supposed to remember. You know what I'm saying? We used to stay up till 11 o'clock at night coming up with funny things. So we'd be laughing so hard and we'd be so tired and we'd be crying from laughing. But then we would remember it the next day for the test. Exactly. But that was a perfect example that if a parent didn't know to do something like that, their child didn't know to do it. And it's sad. It's it's so sad because there are some kids that are really bright in some things and not others. And that holds them back. Right. And we have a lot of listeners and guests who have kids with pandas, autism spectrum, ADD, ADHD, debilitating anxiety disorders. I've interviewed parents who are running organizations for all of these things. It's nice to see that some of the city states are providing services for learning challenges and what you had said, learning differences, learning challenges or learning styles, which is what you said, which is even more positive. So that's fantastic. Unfortunately, I have children who won't let me study with them, so I don't get to show off my skills, but (laughs) (laughs) they insist they got this, but they're getting all A's and B's, so I guess they got this. this. That's amazing. Well, mom, I think this has been a five-hour long podcast interview. (laughs) I just got texts that our husbands have gone out (laughs) (laughs) to the grocery store. I think we missed lunch. But I have my mom is in my daughter's room in Ava's room. You all know Ava uh, from Camcast Kids and the Cam Project and Whisker with Ava. She's in Ava's room set up with her laptop and microphone. And I'm over here in my office with my computer and microphone. And it's just so funny because we're looking at each other, but we're down the hall. We're going to have to have probably multiple podcast recordings because this is actually really important. And I'd like to say right now that if you have a kid or teen out there 
who wants to do something or they like podcasting or YouTubing, get the grandparents in there, get the aunts and uncles in there and tell the story of your family. We had Gavin, when he was in Canada, he had to do a, a scrapbook, which was about generations. And it was really hard because we don't know the history of our family because they're Holocaust survivors. We have 26 relatives that were firsthand in the Holocaust and only six survived. So that's 20 people who were murdered in the Holocaust and we never found anyone else. So we don't even know. We're, we think they're murdered. We have no idea. They could be living in another country and we don't even know it. But many of them were murdered in front of our relatives. So we we do know that about them. So we had our cousins and my aunts and uncles and, and distant cousins. We got together and we just kind of told the story and put it together in a scrapbook for Gavin's project while he did it. And it's a great way to tell the story of your family. So if you have somebody who might be interested in doing that, creating their family tree in that sense and using one of the websites like MyHeritage or any of those genealogy websites, I think we could talk about that on another day. But today I want to thank my mom, Laurie Kohler-Schwartz. Her maiden name is actually Kohler. She didn't have a maiden name. She didn't have a maiden name. No, she didn't middle, have no, no, I had a middle ma- name. I'm middle- sorry. She didn't have a middle name. In fact, her name is not really Laurie. So I'm going to end with that. (laughs) I'm going to have you all know that my mother is not Laurie. (laughs) She's incognito. Her real name is Luba. (sighs) Luba. Um, And she hated that name because they called her. What did they call you in school, Ma? Luba the Tuba. (laughs) Luba the Tuba. So you see, everybody gets bullied one way or another. I was very popular, but there was definitely mean girls and bullying and all that going on in my school too. And we just have to keep it together. So the CAM project is about creating that safe place and anti-bullying. Of course, it's diverse. It is integrates kids from all walks of life because I'm friends with people from all walks of life. And I think that it's really important that we show these kids that we can give them a better future and COVID has really hurt everyone in every possible way. Mm-hmm. So let's join hands with the kids and let's help them. Let's get the CAM Project and other nonprofits that help kids together. We're looking to partner and collaborate, not to compete. This is Samara Hurley with the CAM Project. Actually, is still live. And mom, I want to thank you for joining us today. You got to see firsthand what this is about and I'm not letting you look at the, listen to this podcast until it's fully edited because I know you're going to say, I don't like that I said that. I don't like that I did that. I said, um, too many times. Sorry. <laughs> you get the final cut when it's live. Okay. I love you, mom. Thanks for I joining me. Any too. final, la- any final last words, mom? No, I'm just, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You're just, you're amazing. I love you. Thank, thank you. I love you too. Now let's go swimming. Bye, sweetie. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening. We would love to consider your kid or teen as a potential guest on CamCast Kids, hosted by the Cam Project co-founder, kidpreneur Ava Hurley and friends. Also accepting applications for parents, educators, specialists, and entrepreneurs on the CamCast. Visit thecamproject.org to apply. Remember to follow our podcasts and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 